Dateline. Richfield Reaper, November 28th, 1935. Libraries honor Andrew Carnegie on his birthday. Quote, Libraries throughout the United States are celebrating the 100th birthday of Andrew Carnegie, patron saint of public libraries, who was born November 25, 1835. The library at Richfield, one of the Carnegie libraries in Utah, has received a fine picture of Andrew Carnegie and seven posters on which are printed some of his statements. Andrew Carnegie gave $10,000 for the erection of a library in Richfield with the understanding that the people of the city would give $1,000 each year for its maintenance and upkeep. The building lot was dedicated May 14, 1913, at the time when James N. Peterson, now in the Texas Mission, was mayor of Richfield. The library was established January 1, 1914. A library board was organized, and such an organization has been maintained. End quote. I'm Wendy, this is Demolish Salt Lake, and the story of Utah's Carnegie Libraries. Hello and welcome to Lucky Episode 13. My friends Heidi Fendrick and Olivia Wilkinson from the Utah State Library Division join me on this episode to talk about Carnegie Libraries. I want to give these two ladies a huge shout out for finding all this great information and for sitting down and sharing it with us. Their passion for libraries is definitely contagious, and I could not have pulled off this episode without them. I also want to thank my friends at Utah State Historic Preservation Office for their help with some of the research. Go ahead and give both organizations a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, let's talk about some Utah Carnegie Libraries. All right, welcome to this fantastic episode. I am sitting here with two wonderful ladies, and I am going to let them introduce themselves. Heidi, go ahead and start. Okay, my name is Heidi Fendrick. I work for the Utah State Library, and my title is State Data Coordinator. I'm Olivia Wilkinson. I'm the cataloging librarian also at the Utah State Library. And these two ladies have spent the last few weeks learning everything that they can about Utah's Carnegie Libraries. And trust me, they have found some fantastic sources. I mean, I'm looking at Heidi here, and she has no less than five books (laughs) open to a variety of pages. (laughs) So um, let's get started. We're going to, so today, like I said, we're going to start, we're going to talk about Utah's Carnegie Libraries. Um, And to begin with, I thought we'd start with an introduction of who Andrew Carnegie was. So, um, Andrew Carnegie was born in Scotland on November 25th, 1835, to Will and Margaret Carnegie. The family moved to America in 1848 and settled in Allegheny City, which is now part of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Andrew's formal education ended once they left Scotland, so once he was in Pennsylvania, he took a job at a cotton factory for $1.20 a week. (laughs) He went on to have a series of other jobs, including a telegraph operator for the Pittsburgh Division of the Pennsylvania Railroad. In 1859, he became railroad superintendent, where he invested in coal, iron, and oil companies, which turned out to be a very good idea because over the next few years, his investments paid off, and by the time he was in his early 30s, he was pretty wealthy. In 1870, he co-founded the first steel company and in 1892 formed Carnegie Steel. In 1901, Baker John Pierpont Morgan purchased Carnegie Steel for around 
$480 million. I mean, I can't even imagine what that would translate to today's money. Oh, I have no idea. (laughs) The transaction made Carnegie one of the world's most richest men. In 1889, he wrote an essay entitled The Gospel of Wealth, in which he stated that the rich have a moral obligation to distribute their money in ways that promote the welfare and happiness of the common man. So he eventually gave away around $350 million, which was the bulk of his estate. He donated over—I liked this, finding this out—he donated over 7,600 organs to churches worldwide— and also endowed organizations dedicated to research and science, education, world peace, and other causes. And many of those organizations are still existent today. But this is where our story comes in. As a lover of books and an advocate for free libraries open to all, he was the largest individual investor in public libraries in American history. Between 1886 and 1919, he donated more than $40 million for... 1,679 new library buildings. Now, I also found, like, that number changed a little on the source I looked at. So I'm not sure exactly how many. So the sources I had was anywhere between, like, 20 less than that or 20 more than that. Yeah. Okay. Um, So the communities were large and small communities across America. Carnegie passed away at the age of 83 on April 11th, 1919, and is buried at Sleepy Hollow Cemetery in North Terrytown, New York. I did not know that. My aunt lives in Sleepy Hollow, and I have visited that cemetery. Oh, well. Beautiful. Next time you go. Find his grave and take a picture. Find Carnegie's grave. (laughs) Okay, so now that we have that brief overview, so let's uh, talk about why he decided to give money to the community libraries. So, Heidi, you have one of your many, many books? Yes. Well, okay. So, um, Carnegie's father was a factory manager in Scotland, and he had a collection of books that he purchased for the weavers in his factory, and they would read aloud while working. And this collection of books became the first circulating library in the town. So he always felt very strongly about books being able to um, influence people and change their lives. So he also was a very organized person and really changed a lot of like, when we think of corporate America and the efficiency of corporate America, a lot of that had to do with Carnegie. So he thought he could kind of take philanthropy and corporatize it. That's not oh. the right word, but... Um, <laughs> like systematize. Yeah. The, there was like a... His model of philanthropy was based on the corporation. Okay. And so he, he was just kind of like a, a pioneer in a lot of ways. And so like it was the combination of he really thought books were important and that um, people deserved free access to books because a lot of the libraries prior to him giving buildings, you had to pay. Like they were subscription libraries. Yeah. So those were kind of the two things um, that motivated him. Also, um, a lot of people think that he kind of wanted to become Im- immortalized in the buildings. And so there was also that kind of desire to get his name out there and make it last. And not because of his steel or railroad pursuits, but for something important. Something that, more meaningful. Yeah. 
so that's kind of where it started. Um, he also, there was kind of this paternalistic vibe that he had going on where he wanted to help those who would help themselves. So he thought that only those um, who did not need help were eligible to receive it, which kind of doesn't make a lot of sense. when you. But at sure. the time, that was kind of the mentality. So sure. um, he thought of himself as a trustee for the poor and felt that he was entrusted with the increased wealth of the community um, and that it was his job wow. to do that for people. So it's kind of a big ego. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine having my name on thousand, a thousand plus buildings across the country. And at first, um, cause he wasn't the first library philanthropist and other library philanthropists would have their portrait hanging above the fireplace. And it was kind of this like, Ooh, here's this guy. But, um, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but as the architecture of libraries became more standardized, um, and really built for efficiency, that kind of went away. And he he didn't require that his name was on the buildings, but most people were so grateful to him for the money that yeah. they put it on there anyway. I noticed that with some of the libraries that were here, um, like in Salt Lake, the Chapman branch does not have Carnegie in the name, but all the rest of them in Utah did. That's so I found that interesting. Yeah. Because it's just the Chapman branch of the library. Maybe when it started, it did have like the Chapman Carnegie branch, but today it's just known as the Chapman branch. So interesting. Um, I thought this was an interesting quote and you can take it or leave it. Uh, the best gift which could be given to a community was a free library, provided the community will accept and maintain it as a public institution, as much a part of the city property as its public schools, and indeed in adjunct to these. I did read that quote. I did like that one. I was hoping that one of you had that. I had it on the, on the standby in case, so that's good. <laughs> yeah. So now, you know, we've, we kind of understand where he was, he was coming from on wanting to do these free public libraries. I mean, which is fantastic because, like, prior to this, there weren't libraries. There were reading rooms, right? So, and they were mostly, I think we talked about this, like, in our, one of our first meetings together. They were, like, stuck in maybe the basement or the back corner of, like, the city hall or something like that. Yeah. Unless they were, um, like, uh, which one is this? Uh, Tuwilla had... Uh, one of the, their la library landscape before their Carnegie Library, there was a town membership library run by the LDS Ecclesiastical Board, so through the church, through the ward, um, that operated out of one of their social halls. Um, and there was also, around the turn of the century, there was a private fiction library. So it would be just, you know, a wealthy person in town that would decide to open up Got their it. collection for a fee. <laughs> It was always a fee, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which was not helpful for probably most people in the community, right? Especially children. Yeah. Children didn't have access to that. And I remember reading a story about Andrew Carnegie where um, it was he didn't have the money to pay for um, entrance to a library or to pay for a book or something it was like a dollar or something and he didn't have the money and that also kind of shaped his idea that everyone should be able to go to the library with or without money. Yeah. I think we owe, we as librarians and people who have benefited from libraries owe a lot to him for opening up stacks and making public libraries available. Agreed. Absolutely. 
Okay, so let's talk about um, so a community decides we we heard that Carnegie's giving away money. We wanted we want to get a library in our community. What was the process for that? Because it was not easily done, right? I mean, it was a process. Right. At first, Carnegie handled that. Um, and then he kind of was like, because thousands of communities across the country were applying for libraries. And I, can't, like, I can't imagine just being bombarded. Right. And he was like, I have other more important things to do. <laughs> so his secretary, James Bertram, took over the entire process. And I mean, this guy was just like, I think it really went to his head. He, he owned this process. So first of all, um, you could only it was only available to english speaking countries but it was like mostly most of this happened in the united states um so he would send out a schedule of questions and the schedule of questions had to be completed completely and accurately um which nobody really knew what that meant like there are in the carnegie library correspondence there are hundreds of examples of people writing back and forth to james bertram being like can you please tell us exactly what we need to do? Because we, we feel like we're doing it, but you're still not giving us this money. So um, I think that that was kind of he, he decided what that looked like based on the community. Um, but once you, once you completed the schedule of questions, according to his standards, then you had to send pictures of either your existing library or if you didn't have one, the site. And then he would approve the site. And then um, they had to have an annual maintenance pledge from the city, which was 10% of the amount that Carnegie was going to give them. Yes. So um, that was also really problematic for a lot of places. Either the city didn't want to give it or they didn't want to give that much. Mm -hmm. um, down the road, people who had made that agreement for the maintenance pledge were no longer in power. And they were like, you can't hold us accountable for something that so, like, a new mayor comes in, and they're like, eh. Yeah. That was three city councils ago. We don't hold to that anymore. Oh, wow. It was. It's kind of a, a very interesting story. Um, this Also, the money was only for the building. You couldn't yes. buy books or furniture or pay staff. Um, so that was kind of interesting. But after 1911, so um, there was no standard for what a library building should look like. And the— professionalization of um, architecture was also happening at the same time as the professionalization of librarianship. So it was kind of this confluence of like, okay, we have these libraries who want their buildings built a certain, librarians who want their buildings built a certain way, and we have these architects who feel like they can build them. And so they came together, and um, in, after 1911, James Bertram released notes on library buildings that accompanied all of the other correspondence. And that's how the buildings had to be built. Like square, rectangle, yep. two stories, raised basement, windows. The windows, windows. from the floor. Um, this side of the building is for children. This side of the building is for adults, which was actually like a very amazing thing because it created a, the first public space for children space for children in public buildings. Like, they'd never had that before. And that looked different in small towns and cities, and we sure. can talk about that later. But, but yeah, this standardization of library architecture um, was all about efficiency. And, nice. Like, we don't need grand staircases and fireplaces and all these things. Like, we need a desk, and we need some rooms and some tables and some chairs, and, like, that's pretty much it. 
And books and, and stacks, bo- <laughs> and that's all we need. Right. So, yeah, that's, I mean, there's a lot more in the process, but that, that was pretty much it. You had to get through James Bertram and agree to build the building according to his notes. Yes, yes. And, um, and we see, like, with the libraries here in Utah, there became a competition between architects on um, who would get these um, the, the approval to build buildings. And there was two uh, architectural firms that really came out on top here, and they uh, Ware and Traganza of Salt Lake and Watkins and Birch of Provo. They were the two that competed most for for the buildings, and they built the majority of the Carnegie Libraries here in Utah. Like, architectural style here was basically classic revival, um, and that encompasses a lot of, like, revival stuff. So I just kind of, instead of to bore you all with every single type of architecture, I clumped them all in. And then we had the prairie style, which is, if you have ever been to Mount Pleasant— or if, if, if you haven't, please go, because the Mount Pleasant Library is gorgeous. I mean, so, you know, it may sound like we were saying a lot of the libraries needed to be plain, but they, they weren't. They were actually very stylized on the outside. Right. I was just in Brigham City a couple of weeks ago, and they've added on to the Carnegie Library, but they have the original stained glass windows, and they're just, they're beautiful. Um and, you know, I just think it's so interesting that, like, the local people, they got those craftsmen to come and build the buildings with them and, like, incorporate local styles and attitudes and skills and yes, really give them, even though they, they were standardized, mm-hmm. they were unique to the community. Absolutely. And that um, attention to... You know, that style and standardization and making them architectural um, edifices, I think, really helped keep those libraries in circulation. Um, You know, there are a lot that have been demolished, unfortunately, but their architectural uh, profiles and those details, that's what gets them onto National Historic Registries. And that's what helps with preservation efforts later on, you know, 80 years after they've been built. Those things are other ways of justifying holding on to these buildings and, in a lot of cases, those libraries. Yes, yes. And uh, state history actually went through quite a few years ago, and um, all of the Carnegie libraries that were standing that fit in with the National Register of Historic Places category, they did like a a lump sum of them together. And all the ones that um, were—so some of them had been architecturally— uh, changed so much that like Eureka, Eureka does not look like it did back then. So that one didn't fit in, but almost all the rest of them are now on the Register of Historic Places, which is fantastic. Doesn't keep them from being demolished, but at least it recognizes their historic importance mm-hmm. within the community. And, um, you know, in a lot of these buildings, like they're right there on Main Street, huh? these small communities, you know, right by City Hall. So they're prominent. Right. Um, when I was reading about the Carnegie libraries in small towns, it was interesting because it was like they often expanded that main street a little bit, even if it was a block or two. And there are stories of children who recall going there and, you know, 
that seemed like such a journey to them. Like those extra couple of blocks, they were like, <laughs> oh, we're like out here like exploring new frontiers. Um, but it it really helped with the growth of those main streets. Um, and then in the cities, which is kind of interesting, they were oftentimes like squeezed in a, in a bunch of tenements. Like there are pictures of right behind one of the buildings, there's like the laundry lines. Oh, wow. Windows. Yeah. So um, the difference in the children, the way that the children in small towns and rural communities experienced the librarian and the library mm -hmm. and the mission of those librarians versus in the cities, which in rural towns, it was like, um, you know, like these kids just needed a place to go. Because um, there there wasn't really a lot to do. They would often have a playground. And the librarian was kind of like a scary figure <laughs> for those children. But in the cities, the librarians, um, they were part of, like, you know, the pro progressive movement and really wanting to help immigrant children have a place to go that wasn't a factory where they were working or a tenement that, like, was crowded and dirty and had bad air. And so the library, they weren't as... Um, the librarian as like a, a figure to be like not scared of but kind of like you have to respect and like earn their trust yes they didn't see them that way at all like they um they just saw it as a place to go where like it was clean and there was fresh air that's interesting yeah you would have never have thought that the mission would be different in cities than it would be in small communities. Right. And they had even like the information mission was different. Like in the small communities, it was getting information to families who were living on farms, like far away from the library or the main street um, and those children. And then in like the cities, like I said, it was the immigrant children who they were teaching them to read and kind of giving them this home experience that those librarians felt like immigrant children didn't have because they weren't living in homes like these sure. people were. Sorry. So, yeah. Well, and that and their parents were, you know, working all the time all just to make ends meet. Sometimes in Carnegie factories or on the railroad. Now that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but that placement also makes the Chapman branch make sense. You know, like all of the small town ones, those are on their main streets, their center streets. And that Chapman one is way tucked away on the west side um, in a neighborhood. It's not downtown. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I saw that and I thought that was really interesting um, placement for the Chapman. And I'm also finding it interesting that's the... But it, it actually is the only Carnegie Library left in Salt Lake, I think, if I'm correct. I think you're right. With the demolition of Murray mm -hmm. two years ago, I think that just left Chapman. And Murray was one of those that um, had been significantly changed. So um, I think a lot of people weren't able to experience it. And all of its amazing beauty when it was first built. I'm... So sad. I, I never got to see the Ogden Carnegie Library because I live in Ogden and worked in Weber County. And it just kind of it's like a hole in my library life that like I didn't get to physically enter that building. Right. Well, let's let's talk about the Ogden one. That's a good segue. So um, the Ogden was the first. Yes. Utah Carnegie Library. And it was. Um, opened, let's see, I have that date, in 1901. In an article from the Ogden Daily Standard on March 13, 1901, it announced that Carnegie would donate $25,000 to Ogden for a library. 
And that was the uppermost amount that Carnegie for donated Utah. for Utah. Yeah. yeah. Did he donate um, a lot more money to other places? Yeah. I mean, mostly like big cities because he donated money for the main building and then the branch library. Oh, okay. Well. And especially in Pennsylvania, uh-huh. he gave them the most money. But then it went down like um, the early years of his giving he was giving a lot more money. And then once James Bertram came in, he was like, no. I noticed that. I noticed that the, the amount went down the, the you know, to the very last Carnegie here where the amount went down. So this article states, the article quoted the letter that the committee of the Public Library Association received. And the letters actually uh, reads, quote, Dear Sir, yours of the 22nd received... And that's referring to a letter that the Library Association had sent to Bertram. If the city of Ogden will provide a suitable site and agree through resolution of the council and appropriate $2,500 a year for the maintenance of the library, Mr. Carnegie will be glad to give $25,000 for a free library building. Respectfully yours, uh, Jazz, and he abbreviates his name, J-A-S period, Bertram, P, Secretary, March 9th, 1901. I mean, that was it. Here, here's your money. <laughs> yeah, and it's so much money. Like, it's, it was it's a huge amount for that time. Mm-hmm. So um, there were a couple firms that were competing for the design, but Julius A. Smith he won out, um, and he was a prominent Ogden architect, and he went on to partner with another prominent architect, which was um, Leslie Hodgson. But this was before Hodgson had started his reign of building in Ogden. So uh, so it was Julius Smith. It was built in Italian Renaissance. It was at 26th Street and Washington Boulevard. So initially, the committee had been bartering with Beltram for $50,000. Hmm. And um, he came back with twenty five, and they realized, well, the twenty five is guaranteed, so we can just move on with this. <laughs> and... Um, I found an article that also talked about after the—so we we had kind of talked about this a little bit that, um, you know, it did not give money for um, books. Mm -hmm. So the community had to read books. And so this article in the Ogden Standard from the same same day that they released that the library had been opened and they had this big opening celebration— This article comes out, and I'm going to read part of it because it's really an interesting article. It says, quote, The gift of Andrew Carnegie to Ogden is now complete. The humblest person in the city has equal rights with the wealthiest citizen or with the highest official in the Carnegie Free Library. It is a beautiful building and a credit to Ogden. But the people of Ogden have not lived up to their part of the contract. They agree to stock the library with the choicest book and make the reading of them free to all who conduct themselves, respectively. This has not been done. The few books of the old library are lost in the big building. The money Carnegie gave to be used in the erection of the building, and the people of Ogden agreed to furnish the books. This must be done, So, this, for the citizens of Ogden must shamefully confess that, after having a building donated, they have not enough interest in the future of the city to furnish good books for the community to read, end quote. <laughs> you know, there are dozens of examples in these books of 
communities then writing back to James Bertram and being like, what do we do? We don't have any books. And he'd be like, figure it out. Because, like, he he would only give money in certain circumstances. Like, if for some reason the—because building costs were going up after sure. World War One, And it's kind of interesting that when they were giving a lot more money, it was cheaper to build buildings. And then as costs were going up, they were giving less money. But— there are, like I said, hundreds of examples of communities like in that exact same situation. <laughs> I think it's just funny. Here's this article just admonishing the people of Ogden like, you have not done your part. Be ashamed. What is wrong with you? Yeah. Um, and it also says, quote, the people should at once raise $5,000 to buy books and $1,000 to buy furniture and pictures. <laughs> Unquote. So, again, you know, the money was not furnishing anything. So um, so many communities had a library committee, and, and it was the library committee that reached out to Carnegie in the first place. But then they also had to organize furnishings and books and chairs and staff and all of the rest of that stuff, which I think I don't know what the difference was between if it was easier in the big cities to do that rather than the smaller communities. Well, and there's no established pattern. Like right now, in, today we have, you know, dozens of books a year published by library associations that tell you how to do collection development, how to do, um, you know, uh, fundraising, how to apply for grants. And that's, you know, 80 to 100 years later. So they're in entirely new ground. No one's ever done it before. Right. We're still doing that. Like that's part of what we do at the at the Utah State Library is – help people in all sizes of communities navigate that process. And that's what Bertram would suggest. Reach out to your state library association. Like, we're done. Yeah, we've we've done our part. You're yeah. on your own now. <laughs> that's interesting. I, I can imagine how some communities would feel, like, left out in the dark. Like, not excited to get the library, but then not realizing exactly what that all came with. Right. Which feels to be a lot like a problem with you know, uh, philanthropy today where you've got a great seed of an idea and maybe a lot of capital to uh, move around, but have you really thought out the sustainability of this project, the maintenance of this project? Like Exactly. It happens a lot even with today's, uh, like, wealthy philanthropists. Yes. Mm -hmm. The maintainers are the ones that really do the groundwork that's absolutely yeah now as we told you before the um ogden carnegie library was demolished it was demolished in february of 1969 um it had some problems mm -hmm. i i don't know if it was i mean because it seems like it was built pretty structurally strong at the time but by the time it was demolished it was it was not it was not, and a lot of them had those problems. Um, part of it was the lots that they built them on, and I don't really know what this means, but the book says they were fill lots. So the, the building would settle, and then oh, like, yeah. there would, the foundation would crack or something. Um, but also, I don't, like we said, there was really no standardization because those notes on buildings didn't come out until 1911. So if the Ogden Carnegie was built in 1901, which was a wild time in the United States. Like, electricity was just, like, being a thing in buildings. You know what I mean? Yeah. you got to really get in that, that frame of mind. But um, they didn't 
really know how like heavy books were or like how structure like yeah it was structurally sound but like were you building the building for to have how many tons of books you know or I don't know how exactly the weight is but yeah so and that like I said that was a problem in a lot of them like they they had issues yes I mean anyone who's ever moved and filled a book a, a box with books and then realized that you know you cannot lift that I mean think about that right when we're talking like stacks of like thousands of pounds of of books. And I remember I read one story that said that Dak would be falling over while people were in the library and they would be rushing to hold them up while the librarian is pulling these stacks of these books off the stack to keep it from falling over on people. I would have loved to be in the library that day. (laughs) I would have loved to have seen that too. I mean, I just, I know it's scary. I mean, I'm sure it was pretty scary, but now it just seems like it would just be like this comedy of errors, you know, watching this this whole thing fall down. And the librarians were saying the floors were wavy and, I mean... Yeah, pushing the book cart just to shelve your books was a challenge. Like, they they got all of the life out of that building that they could get. They did. They did, unfortunately, yes. And, and I think you're right. I mean, in the early 1900s, there was all sorts of new building styles coming out. People were figuring out and building codes. Mm-hmm. What are those? Were, Nineteen were a thing exactly like none of this had to be, and I mean I can imagine that some of these libraries didn't have electricity at first. Yeah, that's a whole other or heat. Loved right. Yeah. I mean heat and 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 like no air conditioning, and so that was another thing you couldn't use the money for was fuel. Like it was specifically in the list because you either had to have coal for your boiler or you know oil for your lamps or exactly like, yeah. So. It's a totally different time. So it's amazing that that I think some of these buildings are still standing. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing that our historic buildings are still standing anyway. But, yeah, unfortunately, we did lose our very first Carnegie. Um, and, unfortunately, we lost our very last Carnegie, too. So just really quickly, let's go through where our libraries were at. So we talked about the Chapman branch. And that's here in Salt Lake. And that was in 1919, and they were given $25,000 for that. Lehigh had one that was granted in 1917, and it, it, they got 10000 for that. Springville, 1916, and they got 10000 Mount Pleasant was in 1916 for 10000 American Fork was the last Carnegie granted anywhere. That was the last one. And that's the same year Carnegie died. So I don't know if those two have anything to do with each other? I know that he they stopped giving, there was like, I think it was 1917, which was like, we're not doing any more grants. But if you had applied prior to that, then um, you could still get the money. But they decided to, after they stopped giving money for buildings, they gave it to like library schools. Oh, okay. And other library organizations. But. All right. So American Fork was in 1919 and they got 10000 so, and it did sometimes take a couple of years from the time you started correspondence until you got it. So that would make sense. Murray, which um, it still hurts. <laughs> it, it, it still hurts that Murray was demolished. Um, you know, unfortunately, Murray just has decided that historic preservation is not part of their, their city anymore. And they, they gutted their entire historic preservation ordinance mm-hmm. and... There's some sad stuff going on in Murray. But, you know, I have faith in the people that keep showing up 
to Murray City Hall meetings and keep saying how much the historic buildings mean. So, man, if you're one of those people, please keep it up. <laughs> um, so Murray got 10000 Price, and Price has since been demolished. That was in 1913, and they got 10000 Richfield was 1911, and they got 10000 Smithfield was 1918, and they got 12000 Tooele was 1909, and they got 5000 I know. I know. Uh, Brigham City, 1914, they got 12500 Ogden, we, we talked about Ogden. Um, let's see. Parowan. Parowan was demolished. They got, not, they got theirs in 1913 for 6000 Panguitch was granted in 1915, and they got 6000 Richmond was in 1912, and they got eight. Provo was in 1907, and they got 17500 hmm. Eureka was 1907, and they got 11000 Ephraim, 1914, with 10000 Manti... 1910 with $11,470. <laughs> Cedar City, since been demolished, 1912 for 10000 Garland, um, 1912, 8000 um, St. George was granted in 1913, and they got 8000 And Beaver in 1913, and they got 10000 So those were all of the ones, and like you said, not all of them are still standing, and for various reasons. Right. You know, not all of them were as structurally <laughs> unsound as Ogden, but. <laughs> you know, if you haven't done it, I would encourage you to drive down Highway 89, not like through the middle of the state, so through Spanish Fort Canyon and then go off, because you can hit like five or six Carnegie libraries. Yes. And it's like Manti, which is beautiful. Um, Ephraim, is that where Mount Pleasant is too? Yeah, like. Ephraim and then Mount Pleasant, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So just go on a library road trip. And check them out. Yeah, San Pete County. Mm-hmm. I mean, I spent I spent a day there, and yeah, we drove around to to all of the libraries to get some pictures. But that was the first time I'd seen Mount Pleasant, and I am in love with that building. It is amazing, and that. But then I love Prairie Style, so that's <laughs> just you know, there's that for you too. The reason why some of these buildings are still standing is because the communities have had help. Um, Olivia, do you want to talk a bit about what some of the communities have had to go through to to save their libraries and keep them up yeah um i have not quite as many like stories of the actual saving but just kind of who has maintained theirs as a library and who has maintained theirs but it has a different life now yes um and so um yeah, I have a thanks for a, a, a thank you to Jacob Barlow's photography blog because he's done a He's completed almost a tour of all the Carnegie libraries yes. in the state and done a lot of the historical tying together, linking to registries, kind of talking about what those buildings are now, um, along with some really beautiful photos. So that's been a great resource. Absolutely. Um, but uh, I was talking a little bit about Tuwilla's library. Um, they had, you know, membership libraries, private fee libraries before they applied for their Carnegie. Um, and those funds helped replace those. Um, 
those fee-based organizations. And so that was a city project. But um, today, their library houses the Tooele Pioneer Museum, which is operated by the Sons of Utah Pioneers. Um, and I think there's a significance to the communities that did manage to hold those on, even if they're not using them as libraries, but places that had historical societies that were interested in them or civic organizations that were interested in maintaining those because I haven't checked to see if there's an exact correlation, but it seems like in those places, they still have uh, pretty active library organizations. So Tooele has a beautiful 2000s-era building, and it's not a large city, but it's a lovely building for the size and type of community it is. Yeah. Um, and then Grantsville nearby, they also have gorgeous building, um, really architecturally present and modern. Um, and I think there's a tie, I feel like there's a tie between holding on to that old building and that um, sense of, you know, there's something about this, the spirit of this building that we want sure. to preserve. And this is, we want to have the library as a cornerstone. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and when we talk about this, you know, a lot with historic preservation is the sense of place and what our, our buildings give us. And so, but if you're born and raised there, you want to see places that help keep you rooted in your community. And, you know, having a library that your parents went to and that you may or may not have gone to because a new one was built, but just Still having that building exist and having it take on a new life, which is fantastic. Buildings should have many lives, right? I mean, they don't always need to stay with what they were built for. But I can I can imagine that for the people of, of Tooele and for the people, all the communities that have been able to hold on to it, that it's a mainstay. Yeah. Um, Lehigh's is a really unique one. It's kind of a Spanish style, so it has the lovely, like, tile roofs. Um, it has kind of a unique history because it was part of a civic complex, not just a standalone building. Uh, so it was after World War I, uh, and it's in combination with a memorial hall and city hall. And oh, so they wow. did them all together. Um, and it has cycled through a few municipal repurposes. Um, and it's now um, the very lovely Hutchings Museum, which I haven't been to, but they have the fanciest website I've ever <laughs> seen for a town library. It's like... Louvre level. Yes. Fully like fully 3D tour. It's beautiful. That that museum. If you've not been to the Hutchins Museum in Lehigh, it's a treat. Go go take yourself there. <laughs> uh, but the city was the city itself was really involved and propelled the first library projects. Um, the city council started putting together library resources just on their own in about 1910. And just with that little beginning project had to expand to a new building within four years. Oh, wow. Um, and so in 1917, kind of during the like peak of those grants, um, they organized the Library Commission to work on that Carnegie grant. Um, and so it took a couple of years. I think theirs was approved in 1920. But I think they set a really good example of, you know, this is a city project. This is a city value. We are going to always have, like, we're going to keep working on this. And I nice. think that has been, because they also have a thriving library system right now. And I think having that, you know, that city connection to it and sure. that city support right from the beginning um, has carried on into, you know, their modern, their present day library situation. Yeah. 
And then um, Springville moved uh, from their library, their Carnegie building in the 60s, and they built a so they had one in they they built a new building in the 60s and then they just built another beautiful new one a few years ago just opened up um and so their old Carnegie building now houses the Daughters of Utah Pioneers Museum so a lot of these have strong ties to again their historical societies yes. Utah Pioneer heritage um those go a long way in keeping these buildings alive but i thought Springfields was interesting because they went through another building in between. That's crazy. But they kept their old, like, the 60s one is gone, but that <laughs> Carnegie building is preserved. Um, so there's a couple that are, so Eureka still has their building. Yes. But it's not actively, it's not really in use for anything right now. It seems like it's the Eureka Memorial Building, um, an event gathering space. Uh, the community does have on their website that they, you know, that they there's a strong value of libraries, and they do use the Utah County Bookmobile. Oh, okay. So they do have library services, just sure. not a physical location. Okay. All right. And I was in Eureka a few weeks ago, and you wouldn't know that it was a library. It's it's definitely gone through some changes, you know. But, I mean, I know that Eureka is, is really doing all that they can to preserve their Main Street, you know. But like most small communities, it's not easy. Yeah. It's not an easy task. Yeah. Um, Panguitch also kind of has a similar situation. They are sharing, uh, they use a bookmobile service. They share um, headquarters and library space with one of our bookmobiles. Um, so their building still exists. It's on their main street, but the library facilities have moved uh, a couple of blocks over to this kind of shared environment. Uh, but their building is still there. I couldn't figure out what exactly it is right now, but uh, the Google Maps of recent made it look like maybe uh, like a pop-up shop or an antiques place. Oh, okay, so cool. So it's still lived in. Yeah, yeah, it's still there. Good. Um, and then a few of them are still operating as libraries, like Brigham City, Chapman Branch in Salt Lake, Beaver. Uh, I like when you guys were talking about the road trip down through um, – through San Pete County. San Pete. That's on purpose. So in the 2010s, Ephraim, Mount Pleasant, and Manti were all part of this like little Denmark revitalization project. Wow. Um, and I think like it was a sidetrack that I could have gone down for a lot longer. <laughs> oh, trust me. When you get into this, you find yourself in rabbit holes and, and it takes a while to climb out. <laughs> but this one just seemed fascinating. So I don't I'm not a hundred percent on all the details, but it seems like it was part of the Mormon Pioneer National Heritage Area. Okay. Um, and so there's a couple of different funding sources for those different revitalization projects. Like the Eccles were involved, state history, uh -huh. a couple of federal departments like uh, Department of Agriculture, one other one. But um, so it was a joint venture. But it was like a concept. We're going to revitalize this area. So as you are driving down the freeway, you get this like really well restored um, like view into Mormon past, uh, Utah past. Nice. Um, and get a sense of these towns and that they're well cared for yes. and, uh, you know, preserved. That's really cool. But that is cool. My, my parents are from uh, Gunnison and Salina. And, you know, so, yeah, the Danes and the Swedes go way back for me and, you know, in, in uh, Utah history. So. <laughs> so you're part of it. I'm part of it. That's, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's the homeland. <laughs> well, Mount Pleasant had, um, you know, their, their building is just 
uh, just beautiful. Um, and they know it. Uh, they had a whole centennial festival in 2017. Um, so part of that was somebody built a scaled model oh, no of way. the library as a float to oh. go down the parade. They did it around 4th of July. How cool is that? Um, their friends of the library hosted a big book sale and like a period costume booth set. Oh, wow. They made it a whole thing all summer long. Um, they had a youth chess tournament to celebrate old time games before you had any other entertainment options. Um, there was local art displays, um, and it went on for several weeks. So Mount Pleasant has been—that's amazing. They really have made it uh, they, a celebration. They love their library, yeah. and they should. And I think there's a few others. Provo's kind of got wrapped up in a works progress. It building, did, yeah. So the, it's there, but not really. Yep. And I don't know what that building is up to, but <laughs> oh, oh, I do, but I can't. Sorry, people, I can't bring that to the forefront of my brain right now. <laughs> and so I think the other two I knew are still libraries. Beaver is still using theirs and Garland mm-hmm. is still using nice. theirs as like li- current <clears throat> library facilities. And I just think that's um, lovely that they I do too. kept that going yes. in their space. And I think having that space already built and dedicated, um, you know, it's hard for a small town to establish a library. It's hard to get new facilities put together. And so having those buildings already be there, already be designated as library space, you know, if you have the space, you're more likely to fill it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it just goes to show how important these buildings still are to the community. I mean, these aren't just, you know, um, buildings of the past. They're still buildings of now. Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, the the importance is is awesome. And I, I love that. They're interested in keeping their buildings up. And I know that it's been hard to maintain a lot of them because they do have structural problems. They and, do. you know, and I heard a lot of it was to do with the, the raised basement and how the foundation will crack or will their, their basement gets, you know, flooded. Yeah. They also have, you know, issues. It's hard to make your building ADA compliant when you have really heavy front doors or very steep stairs to get into the building. Um the space in the building, there's just not enough space um, yeah. for the librarians working in the building and for the community. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of needs like that, but also preservation needs as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, keeping, bringing everything up to compliance, earthquake compliance, mm-hmm. ADA compliance, and all that sometimes butts head with preservation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Brigham City, they were telling me when they did their... They brought their building up to earthquake compliance that the building was shaking and they were so worried about those stained glass windows because oh, yeah. they were trembling as they were making sure the building was seismically sound. Is that right? Okay. Yes. Um, so, yeah, but but in April, April, there's a week in April that's library week. And okay. in March, it's preservation month. Yes. Um, so we, the Utah State Library and uh, Utah State History are going to partner to raise awareness about the preservation needs of these Carnegie libraries, and they're gonna we're gonna develop like posters and like talking points and do some brown bag lunches. So, and we might be back to revisit back then too. I so, <laughs> stay tuned. So, t- stay tuned because um, just hearing the stories right now, you understand how important these buildings are, and and the fact that we've lost some is is pretty sad for the communities as well. So. Well, so Heidi, we kind of already talked about this, but do you have anything more to add on just what these libraries 
meant to the community? I think it's it depends, right? Um, the meaning varied with the intentions and the experiences of a diverse group of users. So depending on where you were and who you were, um, the meaning of the library changed. I think it's also really important to note that um, when these libraries were built, they were segregated. And so we talk about how, oh, everyone had access to these libraries. but Everyone meaning white. Right. Um, and that's something that like, I think we have to confront with our past because a lot of times we, we think of that, oh, libraries are for everyone, but they haven't always been for everyone. Absolutely. So, um, but as far as the librarians working in the buildings, so this was, like I said, during the time when librarianship was becoming a profession, and women were flooding to the profession because they kind of saw themselves as um, dispensers of culture. So they would kind of take on this role of nurturing the people who came into the library, and which was awesome, but at the same time, not so great because the men who were often in administrative positions kind of exploited that and would pay them less. Um, and there was kind of like some gatekeeping happening there. But for those women, you know, they were left, they were left out of a lot of other professions. But they yes. were highly skilled, very smart, um, dedicated people. And so they kind of found this home mm -hmm. outside of their home in librarianship. Um, also, I think it's really interesting the pushback that Carnegie received, especially in the towns where a lot of people worked for him. Um, they didn't want his money. They thought it was dirty money. Because and they worked in his factories and knew what was going on, right? Hours a week and <laughs> with low pay. Low pay. And yeah. were, they were the ones living in the tenements. Mm -hmm. and Yeah. Yeah. So they were like, why don't you give that money to your workers? Yeah. Like, instead, in, improve our conditions. Yeah. And they, I mean, they were striking back then for 40-hour work weeks. Like, it's, it's just mind-blowing. Um, and the children that worked in the factory. Child labor. <laughs> so, um, but. It's, it's kind of hard. I fall on both sides. I see that, and I see the problems. Um, but also, these buildings and libraries in general um, are a symbol of a commonly shared American experience. You don't have this same thing in other countries. Um, and Olivia and I were talking about this yesterday. Like, you can go to any small town or any big city in this country, and you will probably find a library. Yes. And that is largely in part because of Carnegie and his money and the buildings that he built. Um, yeah, there were problems, but I think without that, libraries would look a lot different in this country, and we wouldn't all have that. Like I said, even though the, the experience depends on the user, we all have this idea of what a library is. And we can take that idea and try to keep making it better, mm -hmm. you know, just because it came from a flawed origin. Um, you know, it's something that we do need to constantly improve um, and constantly work on building that Absolutely. access and spreading that out. And I think it's okay to have the mixed feelings about that and say, like, you know, yes, there's, uh, you know, pay your workers. <laughs> In yes. all situations, pay your workers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> have decent working, you know, environment. <laughs> but I just can't, like, I also have a hard time seeing how the library infrastructure that we have today could have become possible without this massive infusion of sure. capital mm -hmm. and space. Um, like, can you imagine an, a library being approved today? No. No. <laughs> no. 
No, and you're right. I mean, you know, I, I have a kid and man, we take her to the library and, you know, it's it's a fun, it's a safe place. It's a fun place, you know. And, yeah. yeah, and the books, if <laughs> if you read the books, you know, like, because um, everything else is important too, but like reading about other people and other people's perspectives uh, teaches you empathy, which is something I think we really, really lack. Yes, um, I agree with these that. Times. And so, yeah, they're... They're incredibly important. They've always been important, and I, I think they always will be. But, yes. yeah, they're, they're changing, and we can always improve. Yeah, absolutely. But it's important to fight for public spaces. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, inclusive public spaces, absolutely. And um, next time we visit this, let's, I would like to talk a little bit more about the segregation because okay. I think that's— um, that's something that would take a lot longer, but man, oh, yeah. that whole episode. <laughs> but that's something that that let's visit because um, preservation in history should be uncomfortable, right? And I think it's important for us as stewards of our community and our community buildings to tell the full story yeah, of our buildings too. Because we have a lot of that work left to do in library work still mm-hmm. in general. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's so many places that we have room for improvement and need for improvement and um, more voices sure. uh, at the table making those decisions. And uh, it's the only way to do that is by facing, you know, where we've been. Exactly. I would agree with that. Well, ladies, do you have anything else that you'd like to add to this conversation? This has been awesome, by the way. Thank you so much for spending so much of your time doing all of this research on this. This yeah. is awesome. It's like a treat to learn more about this. It's It's been something I've always wanted to learn more about. Um, so thank you for the opportunity. Oh, you're welcome. Yes, and we'll definitely circle back around and you know, get state history in here with us oh, next yeah. time. And. And, um, and and to thank them, like, seriously, thank you. Chris Merritt, uh, Roger Roper, Chris Hansen. Was there anyone else that I missed? Those were the three that, that I had got from everyone at State History. They're just amazing. Mm-hmm. And thank you, friends, for joining in with us. And thank the both of you, Olivia and Heidi. I appreciate this. And uh, we'll, we'll talk soon. Thank you. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Check out my Instagram and Facebook pages at Demolish Salt Lake Podcast to see pictures of the Carnegie Libraries. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow me at Demolished SL Pod. And if you like the podcast, please subscribe. It's October, so there's lots of spooky content coming your way this month. Don't forget to check out the first short for my new feature on a side note about the ghost of John Borich. I'll have another short coming up this week. Then join me for episode 14 for a conversation with my friends Jennifer and Matt of The Dead History. We'll be talking history, historic preservation, and of course, ghosts. So we'll see you then.